Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be true with the past, but the past is not true with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Keith Phipps. And... Genevieve Kosky. Tasha remains ill, just as she was... (laughs) Two days ago. <laughs> Come on, Tasha. Get it together. <laughs> In the first half of this conversation, we talked about The War Room, D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges' groundbreaking behind-the-scenes documentary about Bill Clinton's successful campaign for president. Now we're moving on to Anthony Weiner's spectacularly unsuccessful bid for New York City mayor, which signaled the ignominious end of Clintonism. The co-director of Weiner, Josh Kriegman, served as Anthony Weiner's former chief of staff during his time in Congress, which ended when Weiner accidentally posted a lewd sext on his public Twitter feed. It seems clear, to me anyway, that Kriegman and co-director Elise Steinberg expected Weiner to have a strong chance at a comeback, given the parallels to Bill Clinton, another charismatic politician who overcame his own share of high-profile sex scandals. But when even more evidence of Weiner's sexting comes to the surface, it sabotages both his campaign and his marriage to Huma Abedin, Hillary Clinton's closest advisor and one half of a formidable political power couple. In other words, Wiener was supposed to be about a political talent thrust back into the spotlight, but his poll numbers, that's P-O-L-E, experienced significant shrinkage. (laughs) Well done, Scott. (laughs) We'll be right back with a mature discussion of these matters after the break. The punchline is true about me. I did the dumb thing, but I did a lot of other things, too. Running for mayor was the straightest line to clean up the mess that I had made. This is Anthony Weiner call. Yes, I'm not Anthony Weiner, the one running for mayor. Why do you think you deserve the second chance? I didn't want to answer. I'm giving you the answer. I thought you were thinking about it. I thought no, you were I'm trying talking to No, I'm talking words. What I'm going to try to talk about is the issues facing New York City. Just a quick optics thing, you will look happy. Don't push up, Anthony. Show it to me again. Oh, my God. I can't believe I gave the press the finger. How many women were there? Can you remember? What I would like to talk about is housing in the Bronx. Any questions about that? Why should we trust We're going to try to look like we're holding together as a group. I am profoundly sorry. And for that, I am profoundly sorry. Does the wife's absence say anything? What is wrong with you? <laughs> What's he so afraid of? Your brother said that your father never hugged you. 
Do you believe you're suffering from any sort of addiction? What are you, the referee over there? We are staying calm and managing the situation. You're a real scumbag, Andrew. Takes one to know one, jackass. Why didn't he just walk? <laughs> okay, Keith, Genevieve. What did you make of the documentary Wiener? First, I just want to say I'm glad we got all the punnage out of our system. Oh, there's no way we right did. There. Well, let's, it's, a, it's a goal. It's okay. a goal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what did I, what did I, did I make of Wiener? I was, I was cringing the whole time this movie was on. And yeah. full disclosure, I did not rewatch it after the election. I watched this before the election. And <laughs> it, it burned itself in my brain enough I felt I could talk about it. But uh, I think it would be too painful to revisit now because of the, uh, the domino effect spitting out from this. Uh, but not to get too far ahead of this, but I, I think – it is an example of, of how both the public is willing to forgive because I think had there not been a subsequent scandal, I think Wiener, I don't know if he would have won. He certainly would have done a lot better, but but also uh, the way things, as we discussed in the first half, they stick around. They, they don't go away. I think we all recommended this movie uh, at one time or another on this <laughs> podcast. So I think uh, all of us, Tasha included, are fans of Wiener, but uh, I, I agree with what Keith was saying about it being hard to watch after the election I did because I am ever the overachieving a student but <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is very difficult to watch knowing what we know about Wiener's potential role in how Hillary Clinton's campaign turned out I mean it's a kind of oblique connection but it's still definitely there but even before the the, the first time I saw this movie months ago what stuck out to me most about it then was Huma. Like mm -hmm. I, I I see like a little division about this in the conversation about the movie or I saw it at the time is like the people who think it's Huma's movie and the people who think it's Wiener's movie. And mm -hmm. I am definitely in the this is Huma's movie camp because I think Wiener is he's a Wiener. He's hard to watch. Yeah. But I think having her in the movie really tells an interesting story about a marriage and about how the two genders can function in politics and in scandal and the different expectations that are put on both of them. And I find it fascinating as a story about that more so than a story about a political campaign kind of gone amok. It is interesting as that, but it is more interesting to me. I mean, my eyes always go to Huma in every scene she's in. Oh yeah, I mean, well, for one, I mean, I don't think there's anybody, and, and this is this happens early when once things go off the rails. I mean, there's not, there's nobody who wants to be on screen less mm -hmm. than than her in that movie. There's a hostile witness. So. She really yeah. is, and 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 so much of our impression of of him and our feelings about him are reflected through her anger and disappointment, all of which is quite righteous. Uh, so I think that's fascinating. But also, I also find Wiener himself to be just an interesting case of just this pathological narcissist mm -hmm. and uh the way things kind of go off the rails for him and you know when he reach that, reaches that desperation point the movie just gets it's fascinating to me on, on a psychological level you know and, and when he has that moment where he asks the question like when he is asked you know why why even letting us film you i mean i think that is such a tell that's a like rhetorical question at that point because right. i think that is because anthony weiner needs to be filmed that's why uh this happened but to get to the just the overall arc of the film I really believe that this was the case of a film that was packaged to be one kind of a film, to, to tell one kind of a story, which is the remarkable political mm -hmm. comeback of Anthony Weiner as told by you know, a former staffer and a friend. And it just ended up going south. And, and it was, it's just one of those great moments. 
in film or in documentary film where, where you start you start telling one story and then something breaks out, you get a movie that is richer than they could have possibly imagined it was going to be. That great montage of him, of his campaign before it goes south, set to, I believe, New York Groove, like just like kind of the energy that you see from him and from the people that he is campaigning to, like you believe it and you mm-hmm. see the, the charisma that could have led to the outcome that these filmmakers were probably expecting uh, this movie to have. That it didn't speaks to kind of the dark side of that charisma, this narcissism that you mm-hmm. are, are talking about. And uh, it's it, it really does kind of paint a very complex portrait of Wiener while still just making him seem like a total wiener. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I'm stuck on too, is that the, the whole, the, what makes him work as a candidate up to the point where his scandal overwhelms him is that need to be liked and on camera and expressing himself. And it also is what destroys him. I get the feeling this is someone who doesn't know who he is when he's alone and seeking some kind of gratification in some way, whether that's online sexual activity or you know being in front of the camera talking about his campaign, which I, I can only imagine that he's now a very lonely person. Uh, who knows what his uh, mm-hmm. online life is like at this point. But I, yeah, I mean, you could see the film contrasts this a bit with Bill de Blasio, who would you know win that campaign of Anthony Weiner just on the campaign trail in parades, being a real people person, somebody mm-hmm. who can just run up to folks in the crowd and relate to them. And if, if people come at him a little bit, he can banter, he can kind of move. I mean, you can see him as a political talent. And there was a time before in Congress, before this broke out, where among the you know hundreds of people in Congress, he stood out as somebody who was combative and would make a scene on the House floor mm-hmm. if necessary in, in support of the uh, 9-11 um, rescue workers, mm-hmm. if I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he would be out of order. He would be on what Bill Maher, I think he was kind of a Bill Maher regular. He's one of those guys who just had that kind of energy. And you get that sense that of the marriage itself being staked on that too, being staked on that hope of just like, this is this is a political power couple. These are two talented people who complement each other and could, if things go well, could rise to the top together, right? Yes, but that combative energy that you're talking about is kind of what I mean when I say that this movie functions as a portrait of how men and women function differently in politics mm-hmm. in that a female politician like, say, Hillary Clinton could not really move through the political sphere with the sort of confrontational attitude uh, that Anthony Weiner displays. Mm. And I think that having Huma there, like, okay, so the scene of the movie for me is the one after Weiner is on the last word. Mm, I knew you'd say that yeah. one. Yeah. And it just has kind of a disastrous performance where all that, like, charisma and energy just curdles into mm-hmm. this like tantrum performance and we see him watching the clip of himself on the computer with Huma in the room and she is just you can just feel the mortification coming mm-hmm. off of her in waves and you she asks him she's like why are you like this <laughs> like why th- this is insane this is not how a person should act and he's like you know no it just it puts more fight in me and and just that mindset of fighting being a good thing and confrontation being the goal is so different than I feel female politicians or just women in the political sphere 
how they can act. No, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, that that is my favorite scene of the movie, too, because of that contrast. I mean, you do have her and you do feel the mortification coming off her, but you also see him being absolutely delighted by mm-hmm. by himself doing that. And you almost get the impression that he's probably been watching this clip of himself yeah. all day long um, <laughs> because he, he just feels like he's been able to, to have that catharsis or, or be... You know, you say combative and, you know, a fighter without really being conscious of the fact that he's made an embarrassment out of himself. Do you know of any other documentary that, that goes so far off what it sets off to film? Ooh, hmm. it's a fun game. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I always think of a movie like Paradise Lost, for, for mm. example, that, of, of being something where you're, you know, they, they show up maybe, you know, expecting this trial that might have been open and shut and end up witnessing this just massive miscarriage of justice and uh, happening in front of the camera. That becomes their career for the next Yeah, decade. it really does. It, right, it's like three movies. But I think there, I think there, there are more there are more examples than that because i i do like it when when this happens to documentaries when it becomes uh a little more interesting and i i feel weird discussing it now because i i can't think of any and i know sure. there are a lot of, many of them out there yeah listeners hit us up yeah, yeah like, discuss yeah, something that starts as one thing and then becomes uh another thing entirely but this one definitely does but let, let me let me offer a premise to you all because this is an argument that i think the film is trying to make before the carlos danger thing happens and and i can't believe we got nearly 15 minutes into this podcast and this is the first time you've uttered the words carlos danger (laughs) and we still haven't said sydney leathers (laughs) oh sydney leathers god almighty we'll get to that for sure but the film is trying to the argument in favor of anthony weiner and i guess it would be the argument you would make in favor of bill clinton too is that there can be in perhaps should be in the mind of the voter a separation between private weaknesses or errors or issues within a marriage and what a person can actually do in the office that that a person's judgment can be perfectly fine in one sphere and not so great in the other and we can separate those two things is that a reasonable argument to make or is that an unreasonable argument to make I think had Anthony Weiner reacted differently, it would have been a reasonable argument to make. But I think the way he responded publicly to the scandal and the way we see him responding privately in this film kind of speaks to a a character, a very mm-hmm. deep character flaw that uh, I can't imagine not bleeding over into his political life, uh, even if it not necessarily in such an explosive way. I guess the hypothetical though is pre Carlos Danger. Like mm-hmm. what if what if oh, all okay. we knew what if all we knew of him is this is this one pretty gross uh, you know image that he accidentally posted to Twitter mm-hmm. um, that was meant for someone else. You know, if we get a couple years distance from the that this relationship is is this problem has been worked out through the marriage. What do we think? What do we think of this? I think the public is eager to forgive people candidates at least once. Mm-hmm. I think you can say that and say. You know, nothing criminal was done. He didn't even he didn't commit adultery. And you can, I think, as a as a voter, you can look to Abedin and say, "Oh, well, she forgave him." Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a crucial part right. of his campaign too. Like they are very explicit about like there's a line early in the film of a supporter being like, "If Huma can forgive him, why yeah. can't we?" You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know what their life was like behind closed doors, but at that point, she was very useful to him politically as mm-hmm. as a 
a smart feminist woman who, you know, has had forgiven and was, was going to be okay going forward. Now, when that falls apart, I think your candidacy falls apart. And that's mm-hmm. what we saw here. And I think even after that, you know, after this, he was a New York Daily News, I believe, con- uh, columnist and, and uh, he's on New York One. And, and all that went away after the most recent scandal, which was, I think, the grossest of the three sc- <laughs> the three scandals in, in Anthony Weiner's. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and that was the one that finally drove Huma away. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's any coming back from him, yeah. for him. I, I wonder what her future is as well. I'm, yeah, it's a, I mean, utterly tragic story for, well, and, for and, I mean, it's impossible to ignore the parallels between mm-hmm. Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton and Anthony Weiner and Huma Abedin, you mm-hmm. know, and especially given the link between Huma and Hillary in their careers. Like, it, it almost feels like that his campaign early on, when they are relying on Huma so much, it is kind of subconsciously calling back to that history between Hillary and Bill and her being able to forgive him and her becoming a political force in her own right. And it it definitely seems like a maybe not conscious, but also maybe conscious echoing of that story, of that political story. And I mean, and at the end of the line, I mean, these, these women have had to bear so much of the burden of their husband's, you know, infidelities and massive errors. And what do they get? You mm-hmm. know, what, what is their reward? The reward at the end of the line is, you know, being you know humiliated humiliated and 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 not winning and not really having you know a future um in politics yeah i mean i think the trade-off i mean what hillary clinton lacked that bill clinton had a sort of ease and and charisma but i think you know bill clinton certainly helped her along the way and, and and made her in some ways a more charismatic candidate over the years um just by virtue of association, I think there something might have similar have happened here. Cause I, I don't think that, that Abaddon is very comfortable on camera or no. I mean, she's public. she's a much more behind the scenes sure. person than I don't, and I don't the, even know what her ambitions are. Yeah, if she if she wants to remain behind the scenes or not, but and I, was, I, I I really strongly feel that Bill Clinton harmed her. Oh, I think so I, far so more so much more often than he than than he. I think in the her. end, yeah, I mean, like I know, just, I know. Even, even practically speaking, I mean, just you know, the Comey thing doesn't happen if Bill Clinton doesn't doesn't walk over and start chatting up uh, Loretta Lynch. Lynch. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and there were plenty of times during the campaign where it's like Bill Clinton, where he goes off script and it's like, are you trying to lose this election for yeah. your, your, your wife? And then, of course, there you just get into the just incredible double standards being applied to, but, to, to male candidates. And, but going back further, I don't, I'm not sure that Hillary Clinton becomes a national figure without Bill Clinton as sort of the more... Clearing the way with with uh, with the machete of charm over the years. Well, maybe not. Well, this this is already getting into territory that we want to get into in connections. So uh, we'll be right back to talk more about how the war room and Wiener fit together after this. Can I just say multiple people, or is it just this one? I think you've got it. I mean, there was more than one, so I think I think we've got to answer the question. The problem was that the series of interviews that I did when I got in the race were after this, and people asked me, "Is the number still the same?" I think I said to six to Dominic, and then I cleaned it up in subsequent interviews because I knew that was a problem. 
question is, do we answer it or not? I think we have to answer these questions. I think we have to answer because if somebody else comes out, we don't. So, okay. So then you're going to give me an answer. So I'm going to say... Yes. Um, it was more than one. Do you believe you're suffering from any sort of addiction? Um... Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Well, let's continue with what we were talking about in the first half and talk about the, the Clintons themselves and how they figure into both of these movies because, really, they're kind of shadow figures in, in, in both cases. You know, we see, we get that nice early scene of uh, Bill Clinton in a hotel at the, in the early part of... <laughs> in shorts. In shorts. Those shorts. Oh, God, those jogging shorts. I don't know. I don't know. They're powerful. How can, um, how can he not he, become president? He, he and Gore, those, those jogging shorts, very powerful. Uh <laughs> campaign tool ah, tool campaign tool come on everybody it's a wiener joke um so anyway in any case and then of course in, in in wiener the only thing we the only real thing we get with hillary clinton is that there's a certain amount of pressure for her to leave her husband behind or not be associated anymore with hillary clinton's campaign for presidency that sort of comes up late in the film but so they're there. They're not there, uh, but they're there. Yeah. They're, they hover, they're obviously a huge presence in both movies, even if they're not featured on either one. Well, yeah. And I mean, Hillary Clinton does appear in the war room in a way she does not appear in Wiener. I think just her name is invoked and we maybe see a photo or something of her in Wiener. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we do get some footage of her in the war room. It's all like on stage during speeches. But, well, I guess there's there's a little of her out on the campaign trail too, talking to people. But... Um, it's it's interesting in the context of of Wiener and the election we just went through of like seeing her back in the first lady role. Like it's been so long, you know, and so much has changed since then. You know, she's got her little bob and bangs and headband and the whole thing going. You know, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of hard. I'm not gonna lie to see to see her in in the war room and obviously hard in a different way to have her invoked in Wiener. Well, and there's a thing too where even in the war room, and I believe this is mentioned that she was going to be a different sort of first lady. That that was made clear Mm -hmm. from the beginning that she was going to take that role to another level, which indeed she ended up doing. And she was also a source of more scandal for Clinton. Like we do get that little bit about, I think it's at a debate, like someone brings up him like funneling business to his wife's law firm or something, you know, Uh, which is like in the hierarchy of Clinton scandals is just like so low on the list that, that, you know, it just kind of flies by. But, but it is kind of interesting to see how, this marriage between Bill and Hillary Clinton has just had so many ripples throughout the political sphere and throughout the years. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, I think, oh, are we doing this? Are we still doing this? But like, I feel ultimately more that's that's ultimately what did her in more than any particular thing, sort of this Clinton fatigue in, in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting to see it in, in the sort of first blush of, of uh, the public infatuation with the Clintons in 1992. And then and then uh, we don't really see it wearing itself out at, the, at this, but the, you know, you can, you can see the beginnings of, uh, you know, Wiener's kind of the beginning of the end, even, even if anyone in, in the film itself didn't know it at the time. Yeah, and with Hillary Clinton in particular, there's a sense that you have you know, a potentially powerful woman and a, and a leader who isn't in control of her own destiny in the end, 
because ultimately, I mean, there you could talk about four or five different things that swung the election to, to, to Donald Trump in 2016. Only four or five? <laughs> four, so many. I mean, you talk about a lot of things, but but the one thing that they that the Clinton campaign hung, hung on to was was the Comey stuff, which is what which is the link mm-hmm. to Anthony Weiner, and that's just again that is nothing that she had any control over. Uh, that is something that became an issue because of his flaws and his misbehavior. Just, it's a tragic political story for her and and for whom, obviously. One of the other things that really strikes me about these two films, too, is just the time in which they're made and the tools which were used to, to make them. The War Room was shot on 16mm. If you're shooting on 16mm, you're burning film. It's costing a lot of money, and you have to really think about when you want that camera turned on. Even when, even if you're embracing this fly-on-the-wall style, you've got to make some choices. Otherwise, the film gets prohibitively expensive. Wiener is a film that was shot on digital video, and you can just keep the camera running constantly. And so there's not this thing. In the War Room, there are these gaps that you kind of have to fill in you know, based on what you understand of of how that campaign played out, and and based on your fixed perspective of that campaign from from within the war room and not from the outside of it, uh, Wiener is really you know you're riding shotgun the whole time, and there's a there's a level of intimacy and in a sense that you're really getting a lot of information just based on the fact that they have this kind of access and they have this tool uh, in digital video where they can just keep the camera running all the time. I think it's also, I don't know if anyone's ever not aware that the camera is not on in, in Wiener, but it's a lot less intrusive. You know, you have to light up the room for a 16 millimeter. I mean, you know, I guess they're using found light for that, but still, you know, you have a larger camera and it's running and it's making noise. Mm-hmm. With uh, with Wiener, you don't. And I, there's no way that doesn't affect what you get on camera. And I, I think also just kind of where we are in a society where we're much more used, whether you're in the public eye or not, you're you're much more used to like, being recorded and and publicly sharing like we are a society that shares publicly on social media Mm -hmm. and podcasts and you know like i think just like there's been a shift in what we as human beings think we should share with the world and i mean obviously that differs from individual to individual huma abedin being a very good example of someone who maybe does not have that feeling but i think there is in wiener a a much more natural acceptance of being recorded both as kind of the way things are with politics and celebrity and just kind of as human beings being used to being recorded and i think we do one of the advantages that wiener has has is, uh, uh, is that i think you do kind of stumble into these scenes of really startling intimacy that may not have been as possible when you're selecting specific moments to have the camera on. When it's on on all the time, you get stuff like, you know, this Carlos Danger thing breaking out and Huma and Wiener, you know, sitting in a room, room together trying to troubleshoot, I suppose, this situation that is immediately perilous politically and then of course is personally devastating as well and uh it gets to a point where the the camera is like the last party to leave mm-hmm. the room at that point but you really that tension that's extraordinary to witness and in, 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 the, in the scene that we were talking about earlier of being in that room when he's watching himself on on the last word and she reacts the way she does you know other scenes where she she reacts to him just silently uh, where you catch her in the corner of the camera and you get her her body language and her facial expressions that's 
pretty stunning stuff to witness. And I think that is something that a small camera uh, that is running all the time and is ever present, that's the sort of stuff you can get. But both films also do manage to find a lot of little little grace notes and, and moments of humor too. Like, you know, we talked about in the war room, the Bush beer moment or the, or the thing with the bottle of whiskey, <laughs> you, you know, and there's, there's stuff like that too. in Wiener, like the, the moment when he and Huma are like comparing ingredient labels on like spaghetti sauce, you, yeah. you know, like, or something that's not even humorous like that. But like at the end when we're, when the camera's like, it's like a full on chase scene between uh, Sydney Leathers and Anthony Weiner, like on, on election night, and she's trying to confront him. And he's like making an escape through McDonald's. And oh just like, God. so in that case, I think just the the versatility of digital video is a, a real asset and that the camera is able to kind of follow this as it develops. But yeah, um, I think the point I was trying to make is that it is kind of extraordinary given this limitation that Wiener does not have, that the War Room is able to find those little grace notes. Yeah, that is true. Uh, And I'm really glad that you brought up the scene where they're reading the ingredients to each other because that is a marriage. Like that is an actual scene, just a light piece of banter that they've surely engaged in before. And it's maybe it's a private joke or it's kind of a thing that they do. And I just, it was nice to have that included in the movie because so much of it is about crisis and so much of it makes you think about them as a political couple and not a real couple, not a real marriage. And that's a scene that enforces the fact that it is a real marriage. And at the same time, it deepens the tragedy yeah. because we, we, we see that this is an actual relationship that's going to fall apart. And there is the, the specter of their little toddler, uh, always, uh, <laughs> in the, in the frame, you know, too. Well, not always in the frame, but we do see a lot of that kid and it's, it's yeah. rough, you know, Oh, and like the on election day when he there's like they have that whole little conflict over like taking the kid out because like Huma does not want to leave. So he just like takes the kid out in the stroller to like walk the streets on election day. And it's like so clearly a a photo op that Huma wants no part of. Yeah. Uh, Oh, her withdrawing from some of those things, too, like the commercial that he's shooting and she doesn't want anything to do with that. It's fascinating to see that because because there is a she does you know the good wife thing mm-hmm. when the news breaks and she joins him at that press conference and I think she does her absolute best for, for him but it's it's she's not comfortable no, in, she's, that, in she's, that moment. Nor, you can, nor you should can, she be? Nor should, nor should she be exactly? But then, dying inside is the correct phrase. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But then you see it just deteriorating from 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 there that 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 relationship and her feelings about can this work. Um, the answer just becomes more and more no as you get away from that moment. Well, and I think that speaks to another connection I wanted to talk about was how the media functions in both of these films. And the media is kind of an antagonist in, in both of these films, much more so in Wiener. I think you, the tabloid press is pretty squarely positioned as a villain, particularly mm-hmm. when it comes to Huma and uh, her reaction and um, his communications director, Barbara, who uh, has to like kind of absorb a lot of the media attention kind of on his behalf. And there's that, that one part where they're like having a, a staff huddle and they're talking about leaving and the optics of if Huma leaves and if Barbara leaves. And one of the staffers like recounts something a tabloid, either photographer or writer, like shouted at her earlier is like, if you don't answer our questions, we're going to write that you're having an affair. 
there. Like just this idea of the press just salivating over every little thing that's happening. And we get a little of that in the war room too, but it's kind of a much more jovial kind of antagonism, I think, especially especially coming from Carville, who just like like there's that early scene where they're talking about uh, I don't think it's actually Carville that says it, but talking about the schizophrenic newspaper that'll like write something and then retra- say the exact opposite <laughs> yeah. thing in the in the op ed. And there's a you know a fair bit of smack talking against the press that always getting it wrong in, in the war room and all that, but yeah, I think um, given that we are members of the media to a very different degree than the media in both of these movies, but it, that does always kind of stick out to me in thinking about both of these films. There's also the changes in the media between mm-hmm. them. The, the just you know, Carvel's tailoring what he has for for sound bites on on the news, mm-hmm. and by the time you get to Wiener, even that is kind of looking antiquated with the internet and social media, with the social media and, and the internet <laughs> and all that, with the, the kids cy- and their computers, the cyber. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, it, they are both fascinating historical documents. I suspect you know Wiener will eventually look well, as the war room uh, uh, looks now, which is kind of quaint in some ways. Yeah. Would the Wiener scandal have? been what it was if his name wasn't so ripe for new york post to have lines uh-huh. like the just the headlines we see in in that movie are there's something there but they are but no, then, no, i mean you know it's it's a thing where he he does live and die by the media oh, he, yeah. it's not it's not as if he doesn't benefit hugely from their attention and i think that story the story of his political comeback as a pugnacious fighter a new yorker who's who's flawed but unbowed um that's a story that the media is perfectly happy to tell you know until they get something juicier right until something until something happens and then the name again becomes an albatross but i think i think his career is scuttled either way Um, and it gets to a point where his behavior is so self-destructive that confrontation at the jewish deli is is (laughs) uh rough Though, as John Stewart noted, that guy kind of had it coming. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, saying, yeah. I mean, he was he kind of acting on Huma's behalf yeah, in, yeah. in that moment. Although, whether that was the correct way to deal with such no, a situation it was, it was speaks not. to the character uh, issues we were talking yeah, about earlier. No, right. I mean, that's he's got the best temperament. Um, <laughs> Anthony Weiner, he's got the best temperament. Uh, New York politician. Yeah, yeah, boy. I guess so. I guess they are. I guess both Trump and and Weiner both are. Uh, they're New York politicians to mm-hmm. the core. But I guess one thing I would say about the media, and this is just the style of the two films, too, is that The War Room, there's a certain rigor to the, the filmmaking in terms of perspective. and It's like, we're, we're going to show you the campaign from The War Room, from this vantage and the information that you're going to get about where the campaign is at, you're going to get it filtered through the sort of lens that they're seeing it filtered through. So if Ross Perot is re-entering the campaign, you know, that little bank of televisions that uh, on the wall, that, that's where how you're going to learn that information. Whereas Wiener is a, a lot more open to like throwing in clips from, mm-hmm. you know, Howard Stern or from the news broadcasts or, ta- or tabloid headlines, a little more, I would say a lot more conventional a film uh, than uh, the war room. I mean, not, not to slag it. Uh, no, no anyway, I mean, but, uh, I, I, I do think that that approach in Wiener does kind of contribute to the sense of oppressiveness of the media attention yeah. um, by having so much of it in so many different forms of it, you know, and it, it serves a different effect and conventional or not, it doesn't really matter. It, it serves the story that the documentary is telling. 
No, it does. It does. I, I don't. I don't want to rag on Wiener. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, have we talked enough? These are, this isn't really a connection. But we, have we talked enough about Sydney Leathers? Has it, that whole <laughs> incident been brought up? Because I mean, you think about low points, and I think when you have just lost the uh, New York City primary with less than five percent of the vote. And the big concern from anyone in the campaign is is devising a McDonald's strategy <laughs> for avoiding this uh, Sydney Leathers confrontation at your farewell reception. That's pretty low. Yeah. I'm going to say running through the McDonald's. Welcome oh, to New again. York. Yep. That's, that's what he no. says. Oh, God. So is Sydney Leathers his Jennifer Flowers or his Monica Lewinsky? Or neither? Uh, I guess neither. I, I think closer to Lewinsky in a way because... Well, Lewinsky didn't undo Clinton, but was, I think, ultimately a bigger albatross around this death. Yeah. I'm not sure. Well, I mean, and, but they never, they had never met, right? I mean, this was, this right. was all a virtual. Yeah, I mean, obviously, know. like, the situations are very different, yeah. but I, I'm talking in terms of the effect on one's political legacy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I almost, I don't think either one really impacted the candidates in a way, because with just the, the whole the notion that he had done it again. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter who it's with, that he had had these communications, I think that was enough. In uh, the Carlos Danger thing, I mean, that's what people were paying attention to. I mean, the Sydney Leathers confrontation—that is, that's something I, I really just learned from watching this this film. That I was not aware of her at all. I was aware of these sexts that he had <laughs> sent out, and aware of uh, his um, alter ego. But not really of her in the same way, and, and of course, you know, really, the, yeah, obviously the Lewinsky scandal got Clinton impeached, but didn't really affect him in, in the practical. In the end, he left effect. a highly popular president. He did. So uh, I don't know what that tells you. So what did we learn? <laughs> this, this is the end of. This has suddenly become the the end of burn after reading. <laughs> we learned never to do it again. That's yeah. the line, right? Well. Uh, we'll never do it again. This close was the, a, close the file. This was a fun, terrible trip down memory lane. It really, it really was. It really was. But we can close the book. I think on the Clintons at this point. Yeah. We, we at the next picture show are doing it. <laughs> we will. We will probably not be devoting any more episodes to movies about them. Yeah, I, should, I should think. I should think not. But you never know. We had our primary colors. Uh, <laughs> what can we pair with primary colors? Yeah, you know, it's possible. Primary colors yeah. is interesting. I like that. We, I like we, that we might. We might uh, that might come up at another uh, <laughs> juncture. But in the meantime, uh, you can find the War Room on DVD and Blu-ray as part of the Criterion Collection. It's also streaming on Filmstruck, and it's available for rent through the usual places. Wiener is currently on Showtime, and is available for a fee on streaming sites like iTunes. We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, you want to kick us off? What in the film world has been good for you lately? I want to start in the spirit of Tasha Robinson, who is not here with us this week. <laughs> uh, I would like to recommend some some supplementary okay. viewing to this week's episode. The first of which is fairly tangential, but always a good thing to recommend, which is the 30 Rock episode Secrets and Lies, which features an appearance from one James Carville, oh. Cajun style. Yeah. Um, and 
the plot of the episode has to do with Alec Baldwin's character, Jack Donaghy, who is a very conservative figure having a illicit romance with a, a liberal figure played by Edie Falco. And James Carville comes in to <laughs> offer some guidance for, to the situation, uh, which given what we right. know about him, is, is a, a pretty brilliant uh, cameo. And it's a it's a really fun cameo. I actually just, by pure happenstance, my boyfriend and I have been watching 30 Rock Before Bed, it's, which is very it's comforting. Good idea. Very smart yes, idea. Uh, just by pure happenstance, we uh, happened to watch that episode the same day that I watched uh, The War Room. So great little bit of serendipity. And mm-hmm. it's a great episode. It's one of the, the series best. So Secrets and Lies, always go back to that. And then something a little newer that uh, very explicitly references The War Room is the Documentary Now episode titled The Bunker. Documentary Now is an IFC series that if you like documentary film, you should definitely oh have on your radar. It is kind of uh, masterminded by Fred Armisen, Bill Hader, and uh, John Mulaney of... Uh, I didn't know it was Mulaney. I thought it was Seth Meyers. Is, is it... And Seth, Seth Meyers? Okay, oh, yeah. Right, John sorry. Mul- sorry. John Mulaney wrote the episode okay. I am recommending, but that, that whole little uh, SNL cabal of that mm-hmm. era is all involved in some way or another. But anyway, The Bunker is the name of the episode that is directly referencing... Uh, the War Room, uh, where Fred Armisen plays the George Stephanopoulos character, who is named Alvin Panagalias. Panigolo- <laughs> 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 so, uh, and Bill Hader is the James Carville character, who's named Teddy Redbones. Teddy Redbones. <laughs> and uh, Hader, in particular, is just having oh a ton of ton of fun in this episode. It is a comedy. It is a spoof, and. They are dealing with a problematic in a different way candidate in this. I I won't give away too much, (laughs) but it does have some scenes that uh, directly reference certain scenes in the war room, probably the most notable of which is uh, when everyone's going around doing impressions of people. Uh, There's a a nice moment in the bunker that references that. So yeah, documentary now episode, the bunker. Now for my actual recommendation of a movie. um, This is Tasha-esque. I know, right? Sorry, guys. I'll make it quick. We're coming up on Valentine's Day, which is when we recommend romantic comedies, of which there are not that many recommendable ones. So I would like to recommend a really good rom-com that I uh, rewatched recently called What If from 2013, oh, starring like what Daniel Radcliffe and Zoe Kazan, originally, I believe, known as the, the F-word. F-word. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's a riff on the When Harry Met Sally formula, kind of the uh, idea of can people be friends or uh, who have a sexual attraction to each other, but in my opinion, does much more interesting things with that formula. And also, there's no Billy Crystal shtick in it. Uh, no. Daniel Radcliffe is a interesting romantic lead. Um, his character here is kind of purposely awkward, and I think Zoe Kazan is pretty great in it. But what I really like about this movie is how it handles the grand romantic gesture and kind of points out how unrealistic a lot of uh, grand romantic gestures in rom-coms are and how kind of creepy they would be in a lot of contexts so also adam driver and mackenzie davis are in it and they are they are great supporting cast in it so it's just a great little funny rom-com um i highly recommend it for just a kind of low stakes watch with someone you someone you love or just yourself it is currently streaming on showtime if you have that and then it's also rentable via the usual platforms as well what if i saw that at toronto when it was called the f word it's a canadian film mm-hmm. and uh the, of goon and i re- oh, of right. Goon, right and i really i do adam driver and mackenzie davis are incredible yeah. and I, that was my first exposure to mackenzie davis who is one of my f- absolute favorites and also your reference to romantic comedy behavior uh, i have to bring up the onion 
headline <laughs> romantic comedy behavior gets real life man arrested <laughs> <laughs> yep. which is absolutely it's dead cl- on classic classic onion uh headline uh keith what uh, what about you oh gosh i saw i saw a lot of really good movies in january name them all i'm gonna name, <laughs> I'm gonna name all of them you know what movie i watched today though i had a little time between between work and here what's dirty dancing so it's better than I remember it being. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I, I just think it's really good for like an, an hour and fifteen minutes. And the last, so the end is is really weird and strange yeah, and not yeah. not good. <laughs> but uh, I, I quote that movie every summer when I buy watermelon and I say I carried a watermelon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but that was fun. Now you know what I, I, you did not recommend the Red Turtle, so I will recommend Yay. the Red Turtle, which is close between Studio Ghibli, the Japanese uh, uh, giant of wonderful animation that brought us such films as Stewarded Away and Kiki's Delivery Service and My Neighbor Totoro, and the British Dutch director Mikhail Dudak de Witt, who I believe is in his 60s. This is his first feature. He's done a lot of shorts. It's a nice fit, though. It's not the usual Ghibli style, but it it is a very complimentary uh, sensibility. There is no dialogue in it. Uh, It's a story of a man who is uh, shipwrecked on an island and tries to get off and uh, uh, finds his attempts uh, foiled by a beautiful red turtle. And I don't really... How much did she give away in your review? I struggled with whether to give away what the red turtle is, but ultimately decided that the trailers for the movie Mm -hmm. give it away. I I feel like it is uh, essentially part of the premise, even though it is kind of treated as a reveal. You know Uh, what? I did not give it away. I I walked up to that line and said, you're going to have to find out the rest for yourself. So I'm I'm going to do that here, but but it is a a wonderful film about uh, the circle circle of life, to quote another animated (laughs) classic, and and, uh, uh, the the passing of one generation to another, and uh, um, it is just full of beautiful imagery. I wish I I watched it at home. I'd like to see it again on the big screen. Yeah, me too. uh, Because it is uh, is a stunning-looking film, so I'd say not for your youngest viewers, but I'd say your more mature, you know, your your seven eight year old uh, types. I think it's. I think I think your older daughter would enjoy it, uh, mm-hmm. and Lily would would be confused and bored. I, think my, <laughs> okay. oh, I mean, my kid would have been confused and bored too. Lily would be my youngest. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Uh, yes, she would. Yeah, I, I would. I would go into it not placing too much stock or expectation in the Ghibli connection. There's a little bit in the tone that I think you can trace back, but it is a very different film. Um, I, I think the animation style is more European than Japanese mm-hmm, for, for, sure. for for one thing, but it's such like a deliberately paced film, and I think maybe that is a, a little bit where you get the Ghibli influence, especially uh, Takahata, the co-founder of Ghibli probably the lesser known after Miyazaki. Uh, he, uh, Takahata was the director of Grave of the Fireflies, which is, mm. if you are familiar with that film, will kind of give you a sense of the the, the different uh, sensibility he brings to it. So he basically just consulted with DeWitt on how to expand this idea to a feature length. Actually, our own Tasha Robinson reported on a Q&A from a Toronto International Film Festival uh, screening of this movie and he talks a little about the Ghibli connection and makes clear that like neither he nor Takahata were kind of emulating that style. So yeah, my point is, don't place too much stock in that, even though it is technically a Ghibli co-production. Mm-hmm. I think it fits right in, though. I mean, I think yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, but, but, uh, but like it's it's not like the next Ghibli film that you've been sure. waiting for. You, you know, it's its own thing, and that's what's so great about it. It is beautiful in a way that I have not experienced uh, in animation recently. It's this almost like children's storybook style, but rendered so lushly. And it has this amazing interaction and reverence for the natural world. And as we see on this island where this man 
ends up. And yeah, I, I loved it. I reviewed it for Vox.com. I, I wrote a movie review, hey, you guys. Yay, hey. yay. And I, I gave it the big old five Vs. So oh, mm, that's, <laughs> that's yeah. the most Vs you can get. Yeah. Yep. Vox rating. Yep. So cosine. Okay. Scott, about you? Um, I wanted to recommend the film Gleason. Uh, I didn't catch Gleason when it was in theaters because I saw the trailer. And I felt like the trailer made it look like a run-of-the-mill inspirational sports documentary. Uh, in this case, a documentary about an ex-NFL player, Steve Gleason, who was diagnosed with ALS and uh, was sort of determined to live his last days to the fullest. Um, and while there's an element of that in Gleason's impulse to make a visual diary for his son, much like Michael Keaton in the movie My Life, I was stunned by how rich Gleason the documentary turned out to be. Uh, the camera doesn't just capture those moments when Gleason is overcoming adversity or nobly going about his charity work. It also gets into these extraordinarily intimate and often ugly emotional scenes where he's dealing with pain, depression, marital difficulties, and a real struggle with faith. At times, uh, it feels like suddenly a Mike Lee movie just busts out. <laughs> and there's scenes especially between him and his dad. His dad is a very fundamentalist Christian. You know, he tries to there's a scene where his dad takes him to try to get healed publicly. Uh this this public healing that goes horribly, horribly awry. And um there are scenes between father and son that reminded me of like East of Eden, like that level of intensity. Uh, so I I'd really I, it's it's on Amazon Prime. It's not, you know, the most perfectly directed documentary. Um it's not gonna wow you in that res- respect, but there are moments that just destroyed me. Uh this is like this is like Manchester by the sea <laughs> tissue factor for you. So <laughs> so uh be prepared for a, a major emotional impact, but also be prepared for a film that, at least for me, was a lot more interesting than it uh, appeared to be. So, Gleason. I haven't seen it. Have you, Keith? Nope. It's been on my list. Um, I know other people who have seen it and loved it. I believe Tasha is a fan, too. Like, mm. I could be wrong, yeah. but... No, I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I think it would be very hard to, to dislike it. But I think, I think it does have some really extraordinary uh, moments in it. Um, so, okay, I'll check it out. out for that. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out February 21st and 23rd. Keith, what do we have lined up? For our next episodes, we'll be looking at movies featuring The Cape Crusader, The Dark Knight Detective, one half of the dynamic (laughs) duo. I'm talking about the one and only Batman. Except, as we'll no doubt discuss, there is no one and only Batman, but many different versions of Batman. We're going to focus on two of them. Tim Burton's 1989 summer blockbuster, Batman, which introduced moviegoers to a grimmer and more serious incarnation of the character than most had encountered before. And the new, the Lego Batman movie, which looks to be in part one long elaborate goof on that grim dark Batman. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of the war room and Wiener and anything else film related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episodes, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve Koski. I am behind the scenes and occasionally in front of the scenes at Vox.com at the culture section there. You can find me on Twitter and at Letterboxd at Genevieve Koski. Keith Phipps. I am also similarly uh, often behind the scenes and sometimes in front of the scenes where I work, which is uprocks.com. You can find me on Twitter at kphipps3000. 
Scott, what about you? Well, I'm all over the place as usual. You can find me at uh, New York Times, uh, Vulture. I've got got something going for, for Guardian up soon. i got another thing going for Washington Post, Uproxx, other such f- fine publications. I'm, I'm the editor-in-chief of Musings. We're in the middle of our produced and abandoned series, which is going great. By the time this is out, the Keith Phipps will have contributed to that. Uh, OC and Stiggs, yeah, right, Keith? Yeah, I'm totally done with that piece already. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, it's, it's in my inbox. That's fantastic. Thank you, Keith. So, uh, so you're looking forward to that. I think there's a lot. It's been great because we've had a lot of really good writers writing about films they are passionate about that were not necessarily celebrated at the time. We got Angelica Jade Bastian on By the Sea, and you got Mike D'Angelo on The Counselor, uh, Judy Berman on Velvet Goldmine, and then you on uh, O.C. and Sticks. Um, Do you want me to write about the Chipmunk Adventure? <laughs> we the next time the next time we do the next time we do the Produced and Abandoned series, Genevieve, I will definitely hit you up on that. So you can stay updated on the Next Picture Show via Twitter at Next Picture Pod, via Facebook at facebook.com slash Next Picture Show, or by visiting nextpictureshow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Seriously, think about it. And every, then do it. Yeah, come on now. I want like, I don't know, food in the mail or something. Uh, every thumbs up helps us find. No, here's what I want. I really want, I want the, like the, the fancy underwear. Guys, <laughs> rate and review us so I can get some fancy underwear. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance producing the show. And thanks to Genevieve Kosky's apartment for providing recording space at her home base, her apartment. Uh, the Next Picture Show is proud to be a part of the Film Spotting Family of Podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. Here I am.